0: And they partner with factories that prioritise safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm your host, James Rogers, and this is the History Hit Warfare podcast. Every week, twice a week, I bring you brand new, original episodes on military history. And this is a truly original, original, as it's on a topic that we've never touched on before. It's on the Anglo-Arab Wars of 1870 to 1920. And it's an astonishing history of how Victorian attempts to end the African slave trade led to what expert historian Neil Faulkner calls the First Modern Jihad. This is the British fight against Islamic jihadist groups who were politically and economically tied into the slave trade and how massive British failures in that battle led to enormous political and military repercussions into the 20th century. It got to a point where the German Kaiser was supporting these jihadist groups against the British before World War I. It is a revelatory history, one I knew so little about. So here is Neil Faulkner on the Anglo-Arab Wars and the War on Slavery. Hi Neil, welcome to the History Hit Warfare podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Great picture to be here. It is great to have you on because we're discussing a topic and a period of history that we have never covered on warfare before. And this is the Anglo-Arab Wars. And I say wars because we're talking about a stretch of time here between 1870 and 1920. And it's what you call the first modern jihad. So let's address that word jihad because most of us might associate it with the war on terror. I've been talking a lot about Al-Qaeda, a lot about the Taliban recently, and a lot about ISIS, of course, as well. And jihad's a term that gets kind of entangled with this form of extreme Islamic terrorism. But is it best defined as a struggle or a holy war? And if so, when we're talking about the Anglo-Arab Wars, who is this jihad against?
2: The idea goes back a very, very long way. It goes back to the beginning of Islam in the 7th century AD. So the great wave of Arab conquests in the 7th and the 8th centuries AD, they are jihadic wars. They are holy wars. And it's there as part of Islam right up to the present. So, for example, when Saladin mounts his great counter-offensive against the Crusaders in the 12th century AD, he brands it as a jihad, as a holy war. Let's be clear, it's not just an Islamic idea, it's an idea which is there in other religions too, not least the Christian religion. The Crusades were also branded as a Christian equivalent of the jihad, a holy war. This is not something peculiar to Islam. When I wrote the book, empire and jihad, and I was focusing on what's happening in the late 19th and early 20th century, I was very struck by the parallels between the present, the war on terror, and what was going on a century plus ago. Because what seems to be similar is that you have a Western imperialist uh, intervention in the Middle East. and if we are thinking about the war on terror in Central Asia as well, in areas which are predominantly populated by Muslims. And a response to that is to frame resistance to imperialism in terms of traditional Islamic beliefs. So you frame it as a holy war. And I called it the first modern jihad, because what we're seeing really in the late 19th century is the revival of what is effectively a medieval Religious idea to create a way of binding people together into a resistance movement. Having said that, let me stress that I don't see this as, in any sense, a positive development, as a progressive development. I think it was very different in the 12th century, where the Islamic resistance to the Crusades is something that you know most people, I think, would identify with as a legitimate response to what was going on. But I think what's happening in the late 19th century, just as what is happening in the world today, is essentially a regressive, reactionary, backward response to the threat represented by Imperialism, which is why in the book, and I would say the same about the war on terror today, I see the whole situation as essentially dystopian, where you have a collision between two forces, neither of which really represents the interests of the ordinary people of the regions where these wars are being fought and where indeed societies are being torn apart.
1: And so do you think that the history we've told of this period continues to divide us? Because, you know, when I've gone back and I look through... For example, when I was writing articles and, and doing my work on Afghanistan, you look through Afghan Pashtun poetry, and of course, history doesn't disappear. You go back and you see the oral tradition of poems being passed down through generations of the history of British conquest in that country, and how that continues to reverberate across the decades into the centuries. Is that the same as the histories we tell here about the anglo-Arab wars?:
2: Yes, absolutely right. I mean, I think there are these very enduring folk traditions, which are partly embodied in literature, as you're suggesting, but also in a kind of oral traditions transmitted through families, transmitted through villages and so on. I mean, I've done archaeological field work in the Middle East and we had a certain experience of that where we were picking up from local people. We were working in Jordan and the war was raging just over the border in Iraq. And we picked up on the very high-level of political sensitivity there is to contemporary politics and the way in which those contemporary politics are put into the framework of a long memory, a historical memory of things which have happened in the past. So I'm sure that's an echo really of your experiences in relation to Afghanistan. There's no doubt at all that when people think about what the war on terror in the Middle East and what is going on at the moment, that there is a kind of looking back To an earlier period where there is imperialist intervention. And there are different kinds of responses to that, of course, but one of those responses is the Islamic response, the jihadist response.
1: Well, Neil, let's go back into this history. This sounds fascinating. Let's go back to the start of your book, 1870. Why do you start there especially?
2: Well, people tend to be very familiar with the revolt in the Sudan, led by the Mahdi, General Gordon defending Khartoum, then much later, General Kitchener going down the Nile to reconquer the Sudan. That, in a sense, is is at the centre of the book, but it's a relatively familiar story. It's a fairly well-trodden piece of history. What people, I think, are probably much less well aware of is that there is a full-scale Um, anti-slavery war being fought in the later 1870s. Gordon is again involved in this because Gordon, of course, has a role in the Sudan predating his dispatch there by the Gladstone government at the time of the Mardist revolt. And Gordon, as the governor general of the Sudan in the 1870s, has a number of officers under him who are effectively fighting a war to try and eradicate the slave trade, with the slave hunting going on in the south of the Sudan, and then slave trails, movements of captives to the north, towards the Mediterranean, coming through the rest of the Sudan. In particular, there is an Italian officer called Romolo Gessi, who is fighting an enormous war in the southern part of the Sudan which is fully comparable with some of the more familiar you know those kind of Victorian small wars that are being fought all over the place in this period in Zululand in Afghanistan and so on it's has that kind of character and yet nobody's really aware of it and the scale of the fighting was enormous we're talking about thousands of men confronting each other on each side, both sides armed with modern firearms, a protracted trench warfare in effect at the climax of this conflict. So what I really wanted to do is I wanted to say, look, it's not just about the Mahdi. We've got to go back much further to see a confrontation developing with its roots much earlier between the Arab slave trade the East African slave trade, which was immensely profitable. So you've got a very powerful vested interest at stake here. It dominates the whole of the Sudanese economy at the time. A confrontation between the Arab slave traders on the one hand and well-intentioned, liberal-minded, progressive abolitionists with the backing of an increasingly engaged Victorian middle class and working class public that is instinctively abolitionist, backed by them at home. They're going out here to try and wage an abolitionist war to eradicate the slave trade in East Africa. It's really all kicking off in the 1870s.
1: So, this is a war on slavery. Is this a parliamentary sanctioned war? Is this, well, of course, we're building on the abolition of slavery in 1833, and of course, William Wilberforce in the UK. As a graduate of the University of Hull, Neil, I can proudly put the name William Wilberforce out there, and my building was the Wilberforce Building, a proud son of Hull. But is this then publicly known as a war on slavery? Is this politically known as a war on slavery? Is the British Empire putting troops out there, risking lives, well, hundreds, I assume, if not thousands of lives, going out there to end slavery on that continent?
2: Much more complicated than that, James, almost inevitably. I
1: expected so. <laughs>
2: yes, yes. I mean, absolutely right that what the British have done is they've effectively eradicated the slave trade on the west coast of Africa. And that's really the work of the early 19th century. But in fact, the slave trade on the east coast surges and it reaches a peak in the mid to late 19th century. Now, the reason why it's surging is because as you get a globalization of the growing industrial capitalist economy, there's a huge boom in the demand for primary commodities, huge rising demand. And that means that there's a demand for African commodities, a whole range of African commodities, including crucially ivory, And ivory involves the large scale hunting and killing of elephants, of course, in the heart of Africa, and a way of transporting ivory to the coast. And the way in which that is done is by enslaving Africans who become the porters. And then the profits are doubled, in a sense, because not only do you sell the ivory when you reach the coast, you also sell the black slaves. Those two things, there's a kind of ivory slave nexus and a boom in this trade. Now, the British were not particularly involved in this, but what certainly happens is that the Victorian public, which is abolitionist for all kinds of reasons, religious reasons, moral reasons, political tradition, the idea that Victorian England represents civilization and there's nothing civilized about slavery, all of those things, very engaged Victorian public. And one man in particular, there are others involved in this, but one man in particular plays a central role in ratcheting up this abolitionist sentiment inside England, and that is David Livingstone. So the book actually begins with David Livingstone's Explorations.
1: Ah, yes, Livingstone's Explorations. So this is it's, oh, OK. Hang on. Let me dig back in my mind. This is Victoria Falls, right? Reaching the mouth of the Zambezi on yes. the Indian Ocean in, what, 1850-something? Oh, God, help me. And this triggers a scramble for Africa. That's what I'm getting at, right?
2: No, I think that's right. Most of the explorers are actually British. Yes. David Livingstone is the most high-profile of them. He was originally a missionary in Southern Africa, but he gets bored with being a missionary and decides to become an explorer. And he heads off from Southern Africa into the interior. So he's moving from South to North initially, hits the Zambezi. And it's when he first hits the Zambezi in really the heart of Africa that he has his first encounter with the slave trade. And although he remains an explorer, He tells us again and again in his letters and his diaries and his journals that what's really motivating him is his sense that through exploration and through the opening up of Africa to commerce and indeed to the knowledge of the world, he can become a champion of the struggle against the slave trade, which is tearing Africa apart. I mean, there's no question. It's tearing traditional African society apart. So through the 1850s, 1860s, right up until the time of his death, and then in a sense beyond his death, because Henry Morton Stanley, who has that famous meeting with Livingston, Stanley then also becomes a broadcaster of Livingston's. I mean, Stanley virtually turns Livingston into a kind of a saint, at the saint of abolition.
1: Tell us about Stanley quickly. Is Stanley, the one that travels out to find Livingstone, because no one's heard from Livingstone for exactly. a good while.
2: Yes, that's exactly right. And he's a very interesting guy too. He was originally British, workhouse boy, very troubled origin. Ended up in the United States, and he made a you know he made a very successful career for himself as a newsman, as a journalist. And this is a first really. Stanley becomes an explorer, but his first job in Africa is to find Livingstone, who's got lost. And this is a great journalistic scoop for the American media mogul who has sent him out on this mission. So when Stanley's expedition, which is extremely well-funded, arrives and finds Livingston, the whole procession is headed by stars and stripes. So this is Uncle Sam, this is America, appearing for the first time in the business of African exploration. But then Stanley, who forms quite a close relationship with Livingston in the two or three months that they are together, Stanley then becomes the standard bearer of the Livingston legacy, the abolitionist
1: legacy. When I think about the two of them meeting, I never see it decked in stars and stripes. When you hear those famous words of Dr Livingstone, I presume, you don't see the Star Spangled Banner behind you. And I kind of want to leave it that way, but I think you've you've, you've ruined that for me, but you've educated me at the same time.
2: Imagine a millennium that laid the foundations for the modern world as we know it today. When kingdoms were forged, languages shaped, cultures created, I'm Dr. Kat Jarman, and on Gone Medieval, my co-host Matt Lewis and I will tell you just why the so-called Dark Ages
1: really weren't that dark after all. Subscribe to Gone Medieval by History Hit wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature?
1: So tell us, how does this massive journalistic interest in that region, Livingstone's expedition, how does this then go on to trigger what we're talking about today?
2: Well, I think, I mean, the British government is very hands off. We're in the period of the great liberal ascendancy under William Ewitt Gladstone. Gladstone is not a very enthusiastic imperialist. He doesn't really want to be supporting major British military expeditions and we're sort of pre the, the explosion of the scramble for Africa. The scramble for Africa, of course, really gets off underway in the 1870s. So, Gladstone is a reluctant imperialist and not really, I mean, a bit of a hypocrite. I mean, not really, I mean, a very enthusiastic abolitionist at all. Not really a proper liberal, I would say, if the truth be told. I think the pressure is coming from the Victorian public and I think the development of modern news media, modern newspaper journalism in particular, is very powerful in shaping public opinion in this period. What the British do is they set up an East African Naval Squadron, and that is responsible for trying to suppress the movement of slave Daos in the Indian Ocean, most of them coming from Zanzibar, which is the great centre, of the East African slave trade. So you've got an attempt by the British authorities to suppress the Zanzibar-based seaborne slave trade. That's in the later 1870s. But all that then happens in consequence of that is that the slave trade shifts to the overland trails, which is why Sudan becomes Increasingly important with most of the slaves now moving through the Sudan. And then it's not really the British government that is pushing the anti slavery war on land in the 1870s. That's individuals, most importantly, Charles George. Gordon in his role versus the governor of Equatoria province and then as the governor general of the Sudan in the 1870s he did three tours altogether Gordon in the Sudan he's the figure who's particularly pushing it and i suppose in a sense you could say that Gordon really is picking up the baton if you like that is being passed on by david livingston he becomes the soldier abolitionist who is actively trying to suppress the slave trade in the Sudan in the 1870s. He's working, of course, for the Khedive of Egypt. So he's a bit of a freelancer. He's not really a representative of the British government. He's a representative of the Turco-Egyptian administration in Cairo. And The truth about that is, this is why it's so complicated, James. It's horrendously complicated. Your, Your listeners need to read the book really to get all the complexities. But you see, what the Khadif of Egypt is really interested in is consolidating Turco Egyptian rule in the Sudan and indeed profiting from the slave trade but Gordon as a British abolitionist provides very good cover for this and the anti-slavery war which Gordon and his officers wage in the late 1870s is a very real one.
1: Absolutely no and it sounds it but is this kind of the case where Gordon's in a situation where my Enemy's enemy is my friend for now, at least. So he's going to push through and take on slavery as best he can in these regions. And this becomes an Anglo Arab war because the majority of the slave leaders, slave drivers at this point, they are from the Arab countries, right? Is this what we're talking about here? So it's about pushing those back and trying to end slavery in that way. Because if you're trying to stop the movement of dowries and the movement of goods and you're trying to abolish slavery, then this is where you come into that running with the Arab slave drivers. And so how far does this then spread across the continent? What sort of major battles are we talking about here? How does this play out?
2: Well, I mean, of course, the Arab slave trade goes back a very long way. It goes back to the medieval period. So you've got large numbers of Arabic speakers, people that loosely be described as Arabs, who, of course, are settled across the region. And there's been a certain amount of intermixing as well with the local population. So a lot of the slave traders are actually Arab Swahili. A lot of the slave traders based on the island of Zanzibar could be described in that way. And a lot of the Sudanese I mean, they are, of course, they're Arab in the sense that they speak Arabic, they're Muslims, but of course, the Sudanese are a different people from the people of Arabia. So the term Arab is used in in a very sort of generic, or I'm using the term Arab in a very generic sense. And what you've got is a huge infrastructure based upon the slave trade that extends across a very large part of Africa. But with Sudan becoming absolutely central as you get the suppression of the slave dows in the Indian Ocean and the overland routes becoming that more important in the context of this general boom in the slave trade. Now, the epicenter, really, of the conflict that we are describing is, of course, what happens in the Sudan. There is an Egyptian nationalist revolution in 1881, 1882, led by Colonel Arabi uh, Pasha, which is an attempt to overthrow the regime of the Khedive, which is essentially a collaborationist regime controlled by the British and the French, really, and representing the interests of Anglo-French finance. Which Egypt is heavily in debt. There are regular flows of interest payments to the French and the British banks. The Khedive collaborates with that high levels of taxation in Egypt. So the Egyptian peasantry effectively being taxed in order to pay interest to Anglo-French bankers. It's a kind of colonial setup. There's a revolutionary movement led by Colonel Arabi Pasha to challenge that and to assert Egyptian independence and to chart really a new direction for Egypt. This is a basically a modernizing liberal movement, and that is smashed by the British. It's smashed by a military intervention. The Battle of Tel El-Kabir is the decisive confrontation where Garnet Woolsey leads an expeditionary force, confronts the Egyptian army on this battlefield and smashes it, and the British then restore the Khedive. Now, my feeling about this is that what you had as a kind of opening, really, to a different history for the Middle East, a more constitutional, liberal, progressive, reforming kind of future, that is shut off by the British concern to maintain the colonial setup. And that creates the space I think politically it creates the space for the development of a different kind of challenge. But it's a challenge which is backward looking, essentially medieval, profoundly reactionary. And that is the Islamist response. And it's led by a religious teacher who we know as the Mahdi, which means the guided one or the expected one, who's a prophet for a kind of apocalyptic struggle. To restore the true faith and to spread the true faith. And indeed, you know, in the more extreme forms of jihadist ideology, the idea is that the whole world is going to be converted and turned into an Islamic caliphate. And the Mahdi certainly has that kind of vision, if you like. And he announces his mission in 1881. And you get a a gradual building of the Mardis movement across the Sudan, which is a reaction primarily against Turco-Egyptian imperialism, it's, you know, because the Sudan is under Turco-Egyptian rule, high levels of taxation, high levels of forced labor, lots of resentment. And then of course, the Khedive has been sending in British officers who have turned out to be abolitionists, threatening the Arab slave trade and so on. So the whole Mardis movement really is powered by this drive to get rid of the Turco-Egyptian administration, and crucially, crucially, to protect the slave trade, the Arab slave trade. So this is a slave traders' revolt. And in response to that slave traders' revolt, General Gordon is sent back by the Gladstone government to try and organise an evacuation of the garrisons and of people who are under threat from the Mahdist revolt. And that creates the context for us finding Gordon at Khartoum unable to carry out his mission because of the scale of the insurgency that's raging all around him across the Sudan. Tremendous pressure builds up in Britain to rescue Gordon that the government has sent into this very dangerous situation. And then you get this expedition which is sent down the Nile. Again, it's led by Garnet Wolseley, this expedition which is sent down the Nile in 1884 to rescue Gordon and all of those others who want to come out with him from the Sudan. And a series of major battles then fought between different elements of Wolsey's expedition and the Mardists.
1: So before we get down to the details of Wolsey's expedition, just just tie that together, because you explained it so well. It, it shows, of course, that war is a continuation of politics by other means, right? So the British establishment aren't particularly bothered with enforcing the abolition of slavery until a point where they're a bit worried that the status quo in Egypt is going to fall And so you start to tie all of this together and it becomes a bit of a double threat to the British establishment, right? And then they tie in Gordon's mission in with the fact that if Gordon's successful, then it also ties into them maintaining the status quo in Egypt. So this is masterful politics at its best here. The politicians in Britain only get interested when their taxpayers' money might not start coming back to them from the Egyptian regime. And so they're sent off, Wolsey's sent off, to go and save Gordon. So how many troops are we talking about here?
2: We're talking about an expedition that numbers in the tens of thousands, if you're talking not just about the kind of frontline troops, but all of the kind of... Line of communications personnel, as well. This is a pretty large scale military intervention, tens of thousands of personnel involved altogether. But of course, because of the distances involved, the spearhead is mm-hmm. very, very small indeed. So you're talking only about 1,000, 2,000 who form the camel corps that then goes across the desert in this kind of dash to rescue Gordon. This is the fundamental problem with campaigning in the Sudan. The Sudan is absolutely vast, communications are primitive, and you are in the desert. And, of course, what they say about the desert is that there are three priorities and they are water, water and water. And then after water comes the other supplies that you somehow got to get to your spearhead. And this is Wolsey's problem. It takes him a long time and it's logistically very complicated to set up an effective system of communications and supply and to project military force southwards down the Nile to Khartoum, which is why he makes the decision to form a, a camel corps and do a quick dash across the desert with a comparatively small force to try and get to Khartoum before Gordon is overwhelmed. And that gives us these sort of very dramatic encounters in the desert, the Battle of Abu Klea, the Battle of Abu Kru, and then the desert column reaches Matemma, on the Nile, some distance north of Khartoum. And then there's a, a river gunboat, final dash, up the river to try and get to Khartoum, to try and get some force into Khartoum before it falls. And of course, it arrives a day or two after the fall of the city to the Mahdist forces, which is one of the reasons why the, the story is so Famous, you know, that it's a last-minute dash that just fails to rescue Gordon, who is supposedly cut down on the steps of the governor's palace in Khartoum.
1: And let's just think about the scale of that expedition, of that mission across there, because to put it into some sort of perspective, I mean, what country can we compare it to? So the size of Sudan is about, what, six, seven, eight times bigger than the United Kingdom? And so that's the sort of... Distance, we're talking about here. And so to fall short by a day is truly, truly tragic, isn't it? And what happens to the gunboat then when they get through and they get there and they're faced by, well, the fall of Khartoum?
2: Massive levels of fire coming in to the gunboats. And so they have to beat a hasty retreat under heavy fire. And then, of course, they bring back... The message to the rest of the desert column and that is then communicated back to Wolsey. It's interesting in relation to Wolsey's career because he was dubbed our only general by the Victorian media and it was picked up by the Victorian public because he had up until that point been a very successful colonial small wars military commander. This is his first major, well it's his first defeat of any kind actually and it's very damaging to his reputation. And he never actually commands another major expedition again. He tries to pass the blame off onto subordinate officers, but in a sense, he carries the opprobrium now of the failure to rescue Gordon, along with Gladstone. So, you know, Gladstone is now pilloried by the Tory press, by the Tory party, by much of the public. As the man who has left it too late, you know, because the expedition is delayed and delayed and it's sent at the last minute, he left it too late and therefore he is the murderer of Gordon, some of the more extreme headlines say. And the British are left with this sense of a military defeat and unfinished business in relation to the Sudan. And yet, for a period of years, a reluctance to renew the war.
1: Murderer of Gordon. I mean, imagine being the Prime Minister and waking up and seeing that one on the headlines. It's not going to go well with your egg on toast and your cup of tea in the morning, is it? Political nightmare times a thousand. So how does this political and military defeat lead us through to that period where your book takes us, which is into the early 1900s, 1910s and 1920s?
2: Well, it's to do with, you've already referred to it, James, it's to do with the scramble for Africa. The scramble for Africa is well underway, of course, by the time of you know Gordon's death at Khartoum, well underway. And through this period, you have got 1870, only about 10% of Africa is under foreign European rule. By the end of the century, 90% of Africa is under European rule. That's the intensity of the scramble for Africa. So you've got a whole host of European powers carving out territories themselves in Africa, an intensification of imperial rivalries. And it's this, actually, that causes the British to go back into the Sudan in 1896 on a large scale. They'd maintained a grip on the Red Sea coast, but the decision to reconquer the Sudan That really gets underway under Kitchener in 1896. Why do they do it? Because of the scramble for Africa. It's really to do with their worries about the French. The British have got this view of uh, Cairo to the Cape, painted red. So from north to south, the French have got the concept of from the west coast of Africa to the east coast of Africa, painted blue. And where do these two rival empires collide? Well, they collide on the upper Nile, actually. And the real worry that the British had was that the French were going to grab a whole load of territory that the British were interested in. So I think Kitchener's expedition is driven by this desire to ensure that the British had control of the Sudan. It's not worth anything in itself, But the British wanted control of the Sudan because it's a piece of strategically important real estate in relation to the competition with the French. And then what carries us into the 20th century is this, really. There is another Islamic religious leader who decides that he, too, can lead an equivalent of the Mahdist revolt, even after the defeat of the Mahdist caliphate. At the Battle of Omdurman in 1898. Subsequent to that, the man who comes to be called by the British the Mad Mullah leads an equivalent kind of insurrection in Somaliland. And that proves to be a very long, intractable, constantly resurging embedded insurgency. The British simply aren't able to root out through 20 years. I mean, it's not really until 1920 that that conflict in Somaliland finally is brought to an end. So you've got this kind of relatively low intensity Islamic insurgency raging through the whole first 20 years of the 20th century. And I'm just gonna throw this also into the mix here. The German Kaiser at the time in the First World War can see the potential of Islamic Jihad because the Germans didn't rule over any Muslims at all. Whereas the Entente powers ruled over lots of Muslims. The Russians ruled over 20 million Muslims in Central Asia. The French ruled over 20 million Muslims in Africa. The British, if you put together Africa and The Raj, India, ruled over 100 million Muslims. So what does the Kaiser do between 1914 and 1918? Everything he possibly can to stir up an Islamic jihad that will destabilize the empires of his enemies during the First World War. And that bears limited fruit, but it bears some fruit, notably with the revolt of the Senussi in the Western desert in 1915, 1916, which involves a diversion of British military resources to suppress it. The British obsessively worried that they're going to lose control, particularly of Egypt. They've got the Ottoman Turks that they're fighting on one side. They've got the Senussi, they're fighting on the other side. They've got the example of the Mad Mullah in Somaliland, not so very far away. They've got the memory of the Mahdist revolt in Sudan. So you can understand how British imperial administrators at the time of the First World War are really worried about the possibility that there could be a jihadist type revolt in Egypt and they could lose control of Egypt and therefore control of the Suez Canal, which is an absolutely critical supply line in the context of the First World War. So there's tremendous sensitivity around the whole business of Islamic jihad during the First World War.
1: That is fascinating and I knew so little about it because it really brings us up to date and provides that context for the First World War. What the Kaiser is doing there is, well, a classic maneuver. It's small jabs at the British to keep them busy and to divert resources and to weaken them as much as you can. You know, you put enough pinpricks in there and, you know, you're going to lose enough blood over time that you're going to be weaker. And weaker and weaker. And of course, it brings us back to an age old theme of great power politics. When you see the rise of a, uh, well, what we'd call today a, a terrorist organization, whatever the political motives are behind that, there is usually some sort of state support in the background there as well bubbling away, lighting the fire, keeping them supplied, keeping them funded, because they're against another state, which is an enemy. Neil, thank you so much for this amazing tour de force history. Tell us, where can our listeners buy the book?
2: Well, hopefully, you know what they say, don't you, James, (laughs) at all good bookshops. What I can say is that Waterstones, we had a very nice review in the Times, and we've now just had a review in the Wall Street Journal. And I'm told by my publisher that Waterstones have been upping their orders as a result of these reviews. So
1: your listeners should be able to find it in the local bookshop that's what we like to hear. Great to hear the reviews. And just to make sure everyone can search for it, give us the full title.
2: It is Empire and Jihad The Anglo Arab Wars of 1870 to 1920, published by Yale University Press.
1: Perfect. That's what we like to hear. Neil, thank you so much for coming on the Warfare Podcast. You are always welcome. Thank you very much, James.